You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you've got a Bible, um, it would really serve you to have that out and open on your lap. And while you do that, uh, let me just point out one quick thing. Under your seat is this card that looks something like this. It's a two-sided card. On one side, it's black. And uh, this is like, for if you're a first-time guest, we would love for you to fill this card out this morning. At the end of the service, we'll pass around a little offering basket, and we would love for you to put this card filled out in that basket at the end. But it's also a way, if, if you're not serving at Stonegate yet, and you would like to jump into serving, we would love to have you. Serving is one of the ways that you treat the body of Christ like it's actually a body. So if you're not serving, this is also the way you could fill this out. Check the little um, box on volunteers. It would be a way for us to get connected with you and help you find a spot to serve. So um, this, is, this serves a lot of purposes, not just for a first-time guest, but for um, home group information. If you want information on student ministry, whatever else, um, this black card would give you a chance to get all that information. Then on the other side of that card is a prayer request side. And we want you to know that we love to pray for you. As a church family, when we have parts of our body that are struggling, that need prayer, or that we can celebrate with, we would love to know those things. So on this side of the card, looks like this, um, you can let us know prayer requests. Um, every week we send out a weekly update on the city. At the bottom of that is a link to our uh, prayer, you know, prayer request list. And so it's a way for you to, to kind of check in with our body, pray for our body, all that is in that kind of the bottom little section, the PS of that weekly update. So if you need prayer, we want to do that for you. This is one of the ways that you can do that. At the end of the service, you can either put that in the offering basket or you can drop it off at the prayer table and get prayer immediately this morning. But we want you to know we want to be a church who serves you by praying. Amen? Amen. We want that to be a part of how we serve you and how we love you. So make sure you take advantage of that. Okay, Exodus chapter 20. We are in part uh, number two of a set of sermons to the Ten Commandments. And last week was really just an introductory kind of a a sermon to the entire series where we um, looked at what is the law of God. The Ten Commandments are kind of the summary of the law. Um, The the law kind of broadly defined is what God tells us to do in the Bible. And the Ten Commandments kind of form as, as one of the summary kind of statements in the Bible of that. And so we talked last week about how um, the law is showing us several things. And, and one of the most important things we can get out of Exodus 20 is looking at the law of God and God in relationship to the law. That the content of the law is reflective of the character of God. The most important thing we can see in Exodus 20 is not what God is telling us to do or not to do, but the God who stands behind what he's saying. That's the most important thing we can see. So we talked about God and his law. Um, last week. We also talked about the purpose of God's law. We talked about it in terms of it being a muzzle. It restrains evil in society. Um, We talked about it in terms of being a mirror. It shows us who we really are and what we really need, namely Jesus as a rescuer and deliverer for us. But it's also a map. Like the law of God is a way that God leads us into the good life. This This is one of the ways the Bible talks about the law. I love how in, uh, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, how Moses talks about the law. Now listen to what he says about it. And in particular, I want you to listen to the last line in these two verses. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses uh, 12 and 13, it says this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your souls, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord your God? But listen to what the the last thing he says here in in Deuteronomy 10. He says, which I am commanding you today for your good. For your good. God is looking at the law and he's trying to remind us that when when I'm giving you things to do in the Bible or things not to do, it is for your good that I'm giving you these things. See, when most of us think about the law of God, we think um, it's arbitrary and it's restrictive. So it's arbitrary, just like God flipped a coin and decided these were the laws. But that's not how the Bible talks about them. The Bible talks about the law of God lining us up with ultimate reality, with the way things are. He's showing us our design in the law. He's showing us what is good for us in the law. So it's not arbitrary. Um, It's showing us ultimate reality. See, you can choose to stiff arm the Ten Commandments. You can choose to stiff arm what God says in his law. But if you do that, you're going to continually and constantly find your life crashing back upon them. It lines us up with ultimate reality. And it's not restrictive. It's not arbitrary and it's not restrictive. It doesn't restrict your freedom and joy, God's laws, what he tells us to do and not to do. It actually leads us into freedom and joy. 
That God is not about, in, in telling us not to do these things and to do these things, he's not about robbing you of joy. He is about leading you into the way of joy. So the first four commandments show us how to love God. It's a map to show us how to love God. The second, um, you know, kind of table of the commandments, commandments 5 through 10, show us what it looks like to love our neighbor. But they're leading us into joy. They're leading us into what is good for us. I I love how J.I. Packer expresses this. He says, God's parental law expresses God's parental love. See, the, the Ten Commandments are God bending down on a knee, looking at his sons and daughters and saying, this is what it looks like for you to live free lives. This is, this is the way toward the good life. This is the way toward a life that's fulfilling and satisfying for you. The law of God. This is what the law is. Now here is where the law of God starts. Look at Exodus chapter 20, the first six verses. The first two commandments go like this. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. God has redeemed his people. He set them free. Now he's showing them what free lives look like. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment 1. Commandment 2. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, those, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the kind heart of God saying, this is what it looks like to live free, wholesome, fulfilling lives. This is where it starts. Commandment number one is worship me. Don't worship false gods, worship me. Commandment number two is not just worshiping the right God, but worshiping the right God the right way. Saying this is where where freedom, this is where life, this is where the, the life that I designed you to live, this is where it starts. Worship me the right God and worship me the right God in the right way. Now what commandments one and two are doing is they are walking us into the deep, dark cave in the Bible called idolatry. Idolatry. Now, here is the first thing I want to try to convince you of this morning, is you and I, if you're a Christian in here, or if you're just wanting to be a human being that's going to function in the way that God has designed you to function, it is imperative that you and I have a working awareness of idolatry and how it interacts with our lives. Now, hear this again. It is imperative that you have a working awareness of idolatry and how it's intersecting with your life. That is imperative for you. If you just do a word search on idols or idolatry in the Old Testament, you're going to see that it pops up over 200 times in the Old Testament. You're going to see that the the primary way the Old Testament talks about sin in the lives of God's people is through the term idolatry. That the people of God have this perennial struggle with loving and worshiping God as opposed to loving and worshiping idols. This is their perennial struggle. Now, if you go to the New Testament, idolatry language does not go away. It shifts some, but the idolatry language is still there. Uh, Let me just give you some uh, illustrations of this. Idolatry is reiterated. This idea of fleeing from idolatry, don't have any other gods, is reiterated in the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says it this way. should be on the screen for you. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Like Paul is really concerned that you and I, as believers in Jesus, are fleeing from idolatry. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's a picture of conversion in the life of a believer. We're turning from idolatry and we're turning to a worship of God. 1 John 5.21 says this, Little children... Keep yourselves from idols. So here's the point I'm trying to make. From cover to cover, the Bible talks about idolatry. And if we don't understand idolatry, it is going to be very difficult to live a faithful and fruitful life following Jesus. It is that important for you and I. Listen to how Oz Guinness, author, theologian, listen to how he describes it. He says it this way. He says, idolatry is the the most discussed problem in the Bible. Now, Selah on that for a second. Think on that. Idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. It is like the root problem. It is the main problem of the Bible. It is the primary thing that Jesus came to save us from, to rescue us from, idolatry. Listen to what he goes on to say. 
Yet, contemporary evangelicals are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than modern secular people are. And he goes on. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and destruction of idols. In other words, if we want to live fruitful and faithful lives following Jesus, it is imperative that you can recognize idolatry and resist idolatry. So here's what I want to spend this morning doing. I want to spend a morning pressing into this idea of idolatry, not assuming that we know it, but pressing into it to make sure that we've got a good working awareness of how idolatry operates in your life and in my life. So we're going to take it in a few different kind of categories. Here's the first one. Idolatry defined. Let's, let's kind of work through what is, when the Bible is using the term idolatry, it uses it over and over and over again, what does it mean? What does the first commandment mean when it's saying, don't worship other gods? What does worshiping other gods mean? Okay, but that, that's the question. Okay, now to understand that and to kind of get our minds around that, we're going to have to do a little bit of biblical theology work. <clears throat> so going back to Genesis 1 and 2, here is what the first two chapters in the Bible show us. The first two Bible, uh, chapters in the Bible show us that we are hardwired worshipers. God designed us to worship. Simply put, every human being at all moments, at every point in their life is worshiping. You are hardwired for it. It's not like a switch that you can turn off. We are hardwired worshipers. Now, that kind of freaks some of us out because when we think worship, the box that we put the word worship in is, is just as big as what we do like in a service on a Sunday morning when we sing. But worship in the Bible is much bigger than the singing part of a service on Sunday morning. That is a very, very small part of worship. Um, the word worship comes from an old Latin word that means worth-ship. So here, here's what it's saying. Whatever you ascribe ultimate value to, ultimate worth to, that is what you are worshiping. And the Bible is showing us that as a human being, part of what it means to be human is you are ascribing ultimate worth to something. This is what we, what we mean when we say we're hardwired worshipers. That all of us in this room are hardwired to look at something and ascribe ultimate worth to it. See, maybe we can think of it this way. Every human being has deep desires. These deep desires for, you know, significance to be a somebody. Deep desires for satisfaction to be happy in life. Deep desires for safety and security. We all have those sort of deep desires working under the surface of our life. Worship is what we're doing when we attach those deep desires to something. That's worship. We all have them. We're hardwired for those deep desires. And when we attach them to something, that is how the Bible thinks about worship. Whatever we're describing or, you know, attaching those desires to, that is what we're ascribing ultimate worth and value to. That's what we're worshiping, according to the Bible. Now think about how the Bible plays out in the first couple of chapters. God plants in us these deep desires that nothing on this planet can satisfy. And, and that's for a reason. Those deep desires are meant to make us look not at God's creation, at his gifts, but at God, it's, it's meant to make us look upward to God and ascribe ultimate worth and value to him. Those deep desires for significance, for happiness, for security, are meant to make us look up at God and attach those desires to God, ascribing our worship to him. And that goes great for all of two chapters. And then it falls apart. In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. Now, in that moment, it's so important that we get a sense of this. In that moment, catastrophic moment, the, the, the primary issue that happened in that moment right there is our worship was warped. See, our worship remained. See, everybody is still worshiping. So the fact of our worship remained, but God as the sole object of our worship changed. Post-Genesis 3, everyone's still worshiping, we all just have a lot of different gods that we're worshiping. Now, this is walking us into idolatry. Because of, of, because of the fall, because of Genesis 3, that, that reflex in us to worship is so warped by sin that, it's our, that worship now is redirected from God to a million other things in this world. That's idolatry. Now, listen to how Romans 1 describes this. This is going to be on the screen for you. This is Paul in Romans 1. Here's how he describes it. He says it this way, verse 21. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23. This is the biblical language for idolatry. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Exchanged it. In other words, they redirected their worship from God to one of God's gifts. Uh, Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Here's the biblical language for idolatry again. Look at verse 25. Because they exchanged... That's worship redirected. We were worshiping God, but now sin so warps that reflex to worship that it's redirected away from God to something else. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, that is idolatry 101. Okay, let me just give you a working definition of what idolatry is based on Romans 1. Idolatry, this should be on the screen for you. Idolatry is redirecting our worship away from God, God creator, redirecting it away from God and toward his gifts. That is idolatry in the Bible. That is the main problem in the Bible. See, when when God begins to shrink and shrivel in your life, it doesn't mean you stop worshiping. It means that your worship, what you're ascribing worth to is just different now. It's just no longer God. See, if you're in the room this morning and God is just kind of a pale thought to you, God is just kind of an insignificant, not a big deal thought to you. He's just kind of back burner somewhere back there. It doesn't mean that you stopped worshiping. We're all worshiping. It just means that you have ascribed your worship to something other than God. See, we're all worshiping. It's just a matter of what is your choice of gods that you're worshiping. That's the question. This is idolatry. It's redirecting our worship away from God to any of his gifts, to any part of his creation. Now, let's talk about what the word idol means. So if that's idolatry, redirecting our worship away from God to to one of his gifts, here's what an idol is. An idol is anything within creation that's inflated to function as God. So an idol is the thing, like so if we've redirected our, our worship away from God to something else, an idol is the thing that we have attached our worship to. Okay, so idolatry is the process of doing that. The idol is the thing that we have said, no God, you're going to be distant, you're going to be back here. This thing is what I'm going to depend on to save me. That's an idol. It's the actual object of your worship. Okay, we seeing that? Getting a picture of that? It's something in creation that we've inflated to function as God. It's not God, but in our mind, it is inflated to the point where it's functioning like a God. Okay, now this is where the plot clots just a little bit. When most of us think about idols, we think of bad things. But, but idols are not, you know, most of the time, they're not bad things in our life. More likely than not, they are good things in our life. See, idols can actually be good things inflated to be like God-like things in our life. Now, why is it that we're more prone to make good things idols as opposed to bad things idols? Because good, now listen to this, because good things, when we're looking at good things, we're much more likely to believe a really good gift from God can be something that could be God-like. We're much more likely to believe a good gift from God can actually stand in the place of God and give us what only God can. You see how that works? So you're much more likely to think your marriage can give you what only God can. You're much more likely to think sex can give you what only God can. You're much more likely to think your career can give you what only God can. You're much more likely to think money and possessions can give you what only God can. You're much more likely to think your kids can give you what only God can. You're much more likely to think career advancement, accomplishing another big thing, will give you what only God can. See, it's, it's more likely than not those good things that you're going to elevate to be God things in your life. See, idolatry is redirecting our worship away from God to, to any of God's gifts. An idol is, the, is the, the specific gift that we are attaching our worship to. Okay, so this is idolatry in the Bible. Now, let me just kind of press into this with with describing idolatry. And let me do this from two different angles. First, I want to give you a couple of the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe idolatry. Some of the metaphors. Like, how does the Bible go about describing idolatry? Let me give you three metaphors, three biblical images in the Bible for idolatry. The first is the imagery of marriage. See, it's a question of what are you going to love most in your life? And here's how the Bible describes it. 
This is what commandment one is trying to show us, that God should be our true spouse, but idols function as a mistress to our real marriage. That they, they step in between us and God, our real marriage, and, and they look at us and they demand our allegiance. They're looking at us saying, you can't live without me. You can live without God, but you cannot live without me. This is what idols do. They function as a mistress. See, this is why in the Old Testament, um, spiritual adultery, the, the kind of idea of adultery, was one of the primary ways that the, that the Old Testament prophets taught about idolatry. It was one of the primary metaphors. If you want to just an up-close look at this, look at the book of Hosea. It puts it in very graphic terms. It's looking at the people of Israel using Gomer, who is a prostitute, saying, this is what, God is saying, this is what you're doing to me. You are prostituting yourself with these idols. See, it's this idea of marriage or love. So just to kind of get a sense of this, I want you to think about marriage or think about your wedding day. If you've been married already, think back to your wedding day. If you're not married yet and you're hoping to be, think forward to that potential day and just put yourself in the place of the groom for a moment and think about this moment where, you know, all this anticipation is built up. You know, the bride is about to bust through the back door. Finally, she does. The music starts. She comes through the back door. She rounds the corners, coming down the center aisle. And all of a sudden you see something very strange. As your bride is coming down the center aisle, she's got like four of her boyfriends flanking her. Now, what would you be thinking as a groom in that moment? I'm about ready to kill some boyfriends, right? Like some boyfriends are about to die. Now, this is exactly God's response to our idolatry. This is why in Exodus 20, verse 5, he says, I am a jealous God, but I'm not apathetic to your idolatry. I am your groom, and it's as if you are walking down the aisle with your boyfriends beside you. And that is appalling to me, God is saying. See, it's this question of love. What do you love most? Is it God or is it all of these little mistresses? All of these little, little mistresses that have kind of crept in between you and God. So that's one image for idolatry. Here's the next one. It's the image of salvation. It's the issue of trust. What are we really going to trust in our life to save us? So according to the first commandment, God is saying this. God should be our true savior. But idols come in and they, fu they function as substitute saviors. See, we all have confessional gods and we have functional gods. Let me describe the difference in those two. A confessional God is answered by your lips. It's how you answer the question with your lips, what God are you depending on to save you? And for most of us in the room, we're probably going to save this, the God of the Bible. I'm depending on Jesus to save me. That's our confessional answer. But oftentimes, our confessional answer is much different than our functional answer. Our functional answer isn't answered by our lips, but by our lives. Our functional answer is answered by our lives. What are we depending on to save us? Okay, so this is how it works. In every one of our minds in this room, there are certain parts of our life that we have categorized as, that is a functional hell, and other parts of our life that we have said, if we can get this, that is our functional heaven. Okay, so you've got functional hells, I've got functional hells, you've got functional heavens, I've got functional heavens. Functional hell is, this is, if I go here, I'm going to constantly be in a state of despair. Functional heavens are, if I can just get here, then I'll be okay. Okay, functional heavens, functional hells. Our functional God our real God is what we are depending to to rescue us from our hell and deliver us to our heaven. That's what you're really serving. That is your real God right now as you sit in this room. What are you depending on to save you? To save you from your hells and to deliver you to your heavens. Whatever that is right now in your life, that's your God. That's your idol. If it's anything other than God, that's idolatry. So it's the issue of that, that salvation issue. What, what do you trust? And the third metaphor is that of slavery. That of slavery. So this gets at the issue of obedience. Who are you going to obey with your life? According to the first commandment, God should be our ultimate Lord and master. He should be our real king in our life. But idols function as cruel and controlling masters. This is how idols function in our life. Now, just think about this in the context of, the, of Exodus. So if you go back to Exodus 1, if you read Exodus 1 through 19, here's what you're going to find out. There is a cruel and controlling king in the people of, of Israel's life. He's the king of Egypt. He's Pharaoh. 
He is a cruel and controlling taskmaster. What he wants goes. He is the one in absolute control of the people of Israel. And he is ruthless. Absolutely ruthless. And it's ironic that, that as Moses comes and approaches Pharaoh, do you, do you remember Moses' constant refrain? He looks at Pharaoh and says, let God's people go. Why? So they can serve or worship God. It's either worship and serve Pharaoh or worship and serve God. And Moses is saying, they're not going to worship and serve you. They're going to worship and serve God. See, the whole story of Exodus is God busting them out of the slavery of Pharaoh and delivering them into a good and gracious kingdom of, of, of his own. That's the whole idea of redemption in, in the Exodus. And in the same way, this is what idols do to us. They control us. They enslave us. See, whatever you're serving in your life right now, if it's anything other than Jesus, it is a ruthless master that is demanding your obedience. See, in, in, the 20, in our 21st century world, we have a whole language around addiction, a whole language around that. And the Bible's language to describe addiction is not addiction, it's idolatry. That's the whole biblical language for addiction. See, addictions are just one of the many prisons that your masters, cruel and controlling idols, will put a person in. That's all idolatry language, though. It enslaves us. It's re-signing up. It's like us saying to our idol, we're going to sign up for slavery. We're in for that. Okay, now think about this. The first commandment. Like, what is God doing in the first commandment? This is a good and gracious God bending down on his knee, looking at his sons and daughters, saying, I've set you free. Don't live enslaved. I mean, is there anything that would break the heart of God the Father more than to watch his sons and daughters who he has redeemed and set free from slavery voluntarily sign back up for it? See, this is, this is the terrible thing about idolatry. They promise so much, but they cannot deliver. They cannot deliver. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. He says, idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. They always do. They just don't have the capacity. If you're looking at any of God's gifts right now saying, I am depending on you to save me. Here's functional hell. Here's functional heaven. I'm depending on you to rescue me. If you're doing that to any of God's gifts that he has given you, you are setting yourself up for such disappointment. See, according to the Bible, Idols are always ruthless lovers. They're feeble saviors. They're controlling kings. They promise so much, but they just cannot deliver, right? This is idolatry in the Bible. This is how the Bible describes idolatry. Now, now one more part about describing idolatry. This is really important for you to get a sense of. Internal idols fuel external behavior. Now, that idea right there is imperative that you know about your life. Your external actions are the fruit. They're the symptoms. Internal action, your internal idols, they're at the root of things. They're at the source. Source is idolatry. Symptoms are actions. That is so, so important for you to get a sense of. That there is something animating and controlling your behavior. There is something motivating your behavior. And it's either a worship of God or a worship of idols. That's the only two options. See, in the Bible, the opposite to Christianity is not atheism. The opposite to Christianity is idolatry. We've all got one of two options with our worship. It's either directed at an idol or it's directed at God. And one of those two things is motivating and animating your actions right now. One of those two things. Now, this is where Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, had such great insight when he said this. To break commandments 2 through 10, here is what it means. It means that you have already broken commandment one. If you keep commandment one, it is impossible for you to break commandments two through ten. See, two through ten are external actions. Commandment one is the internal heart motivation. It's the, idol, the idolatry issue. When our lives are free from idols, we keep commandments two through ten. When our hearts are ruled by idols, we start breaking commandments two through ten. This is how the Bible works. Right? To break the commandments, it means you've already breaking, broken commandment one. So let's just apply this to lying for a second. See, if you think about lying, there is a reason that you're lying. You don't just lie. You lie for a reason. And the reason is a worship of idols. So if you're worshiping reputation, you'll lie to keep your reputation intact. If you're worshiping people, you'll lie to keep your place and position among a group of people. Right? Does that make sense? 
See, it's, your external actions are always motivated by internal behavior. I was talking to a guy just last night who was talking about uh, addictions, addiction he had in his life. He was addicted to pain, to pain pills for a good while. And he just couldn't figure out, why am I addicted to this? What is going on inside of me? How is this happening? And there was this light bulb moment for him when he finally realized that addiction was rooted in idolatry. That's why I'm breaking commandment one. I'm looking at this pill to give me what only God can give me. I'm looking at this pill to rescue me from my functional hell and deliver me to my functional heaven. That's the problem. See, to, to break the commandments, bad behavior is always motivated by internal idolatry. Now, here again is where the plot clots. It's not just bad behavior that can be motivated by idolatry. It's also good behavior that can be motivated by idolatry. Now, just let that blow your mind for a second, right? That it's not just the good, it's also the bad that can motivate or be motivated from idolatry. Now, hear what I'm about to say. Good behavior motivated for the wrong reason is just as offensive to God as bad behavior motivated from the wrong things. They're both equally offensive to God. See, God is not primarily concerned with your external behavior. He's concerned with your heart, what is motivating that behavior. That is what God is primarily concerned about in your life. And I, it's either motivating our good and bad behavior. It's either the worship of idols or it's the worship of Jesus. It's one or the other. Okay, so it's really important for you to do some heart work in figuring that out. Let me just give you an illustration of how good behavior can be motivated from idolatry. I did student ministry for like eight years. I'm pretty sure I've got a mansion in heaven somewhere for those eight years, right? So, uh, so eight years did that. Now, I saw this scenario play itself out over and over and over again. Here's the scenario. You've got a rebellious, law-breaking, where's the commandment, I'm going to break it sort of a kid, right? Has no sort of fear of God, no sort of love for God in him. All of a sudden, he finds a girl who loves Jesus, and he decides he's interested in that girl. He goes from lawbreaker to lawkeeper. This dude's got Bible in hand. He's towing the line. He shows up every Wednesday night. He is there. He's got hands up. And, I mean, he is doing the thing. And you would swear on the outside that there has been a deep change of heart in this man. And then all of a sudden, they break up. And you don't see the guy again. He's lawbreaking again. Now ask yourself the question, what is happening in that moment? See, you would think that there's a deep internal change going on, but there was not a deep internal change. The only thing that changed was the, the idol he was worshiping. One idol was wanting bad behavior. The other idol was wanting good behavior. But both of those two scenarios, in both of those moments, he's still animated and motivated by idolatry, not a love and worship of Jesus. Do you see how that plays out? Um, Brandon Curran is one of the, the guys in our church. He uh, played some college basketball at the University of Texas, coaches college basketball now. And uh, he sent me this long email back in the fall where uh, he was working through, like he's looking at this drive and ambition that he has in coaching. Now, would we all agree that coaching is a good thing? Nothing wrong with coaching. It's a, it's a good ambition. It's a, it, you get to change a lot of kids' lives through coaching. So it's a great thing. But he's looking at coaching and this drive and intensity that he has for it, and he finally is beginning to realize, I, I don't think that's motivated by a worship of God. I think it's motivated by a worship of coaching. I think it's, it's good things motivated from the wrong places in my heart. And there is this moment where he begins to see that, and he begins to repent of doing a good thing from the wrong motives. Now, if you were to talk to Brandon about that, here's what he would say. That has been one of the most significant moments in my life. I have never, I, I, I have felt a renewed sense of freedom in coaching. I'm not, you know, I'm, you know, back in the day, he wasn't just coaching. He's coaching for his life. He's coaching in an effort to save himself from his functional hell and to get him to his functional heaven. He's coaching for his life. And for the first time, now coaching is just coaching. It's the same drive, the same ambition, the same intensity, but now it's rooted in a right heart. No longer is it rooted in idolatry. It's actually rooted in a worship of God. Now coaching, he's not worshiping coaching. He's working at the art of coaching, and he's worshiping God as he's doing that. But do you see how that works? He's doing a good thing from the wrong heart, and that's just as bad as doing a bad thing. 
God is not just concerned about your external conformity. He wants your heart to be worshiping him. Maybe you could say it this way. Satan doesn't care if you act good or bad. All he cares about is that your acting is motivated from a false God. He, doesn't, he is equally fine if you're a lawbreaker or you're a law keeper. As long as your law whatevering is motivated from a false God. He's equally good with both of those. Okay, uh, number three, idolatry discovered. So let's press into this for a minute. Idolatry discovered. That was idolatry described. Now I want to press in just for a few minutes here, and I want you to, to get a sense of where idolatry is in your life. Now here's the assumption I'm working under. I'm working under the assumption that it's not a question of if idolatry is in your life, but where. And what does it look like? And how is it playing out? And those are questions that are massively important for you to know. So I'm just praying for you right now that you'd have the courage to, to face yourself. See, when we're talking about idolatry, we're talking about what is driving you under the surface of your life. What, the reason that you're doing all of these external things, what is under that driving you, pushing you? What is that? Now, to talk about these questions, let me frame this really quickly um, with a part of the New City Catechism. We use this catechism. We encourage all of our people in our church family to be using it. If you're not using it, please jump on it. You can download the app um, from the, the uh, iTunes app store. Please get on this, this catechism. It would be a blessing to you and your family. Look at what question 17 of the New City Catechism says. Here's the question. What is idolatry? Here's its answer. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator. In other words, it's worshiping, redirecting our worship from God to one of his gifts. But I want you to look at the last phrase, and I want you to pick up on this last phrase here. We're, it's trusting in created things rather than the creator for these things, for our hope and happiness, for our significance and security. So I want you to get a sense of when you're thinking about where are idols in my life, what we're all prone to do is start naming like, I mean, our idol is like career, or our idol is our marriage, or our idol is this or that or that. But I want you to see past the object of your worship to what you're trying to get from that object. And what you're trying to get from that object is one of these deep desires in you. Happiness, we might call that satisfaction. Significance, like what are you going to depend on to make you a someone? And security, what's going to provide a level of safety in your life? We're all going to be looking at something out there for those three things. It's either God for that or it's an idol. But I want you to see not just the object that you're worshiping, but what you're trying to get from it. And here's what I ultimately want to give you the hope of. An idol cannot give you those things. Only God can give you that. Only God can give you those deep longings that your heart craves. So let me give you six questions really briefly that I think will help you see where idolatry is playing out in your life. Here's question number one. What are you looking to in your heart of hearts and saying, if I have blank, then I'll feel significant? In other words, what are you looking to to validate yourself, to prove to yourself and the world and even God that you are a somebody? That, I mean, you've got, you're, you're okay. That you're all, what are you looking to for that? I use this illustration all the time. Rocky won. There's this moment where Adrian's trying to keep Rocky from going into the ring um, with Apollo Creed. She's just, she's just trying to encourage him. Listen, you don't have to do this. You're probably going to get killed. You don't have to do it. And, and here's what Rocky says in response back to her. The only thing I want to do is go the distance. That's all. Nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with Creed. If I go them 15 rounds and that bell rings and I'm still standing... I'm going to know that I wasn't just another bum from the neighborhood. Now, we all, just like Rocky, are depending on something to prove to ourselves and others and God that we're not just another bum from the neighborhood. And if what you're depending on is anything other than God, it's ultimately going to disappoint you, and it's what the Bible calls idolatry. Only God can give you that sense of significance that you crave. Here's question number two. What are you looking at in your heart of hearts and saying, if I have blank, then I'll finally be happy. Then I'll, my, man, that little itch for happiness and satisfaction, it'll finally be quenched. See, we're all prone to be, to be people who are always looking at the grass on the other side of the fence thinking it's going to be greener over there. 
if we can just have that, if we can just get this, if we can just change this in our life, then we'll finally be happy. That is a, that is a false God lying to you. That's just not true. See, here's the great news of Jesus. When we are rescued and redeemed by Jesus and we begin to depend on him for our hope and happiness, here's what we, here's the capacity in us is created regardless of our circumstances to finally have the contentment that we've always craved. That's commandment number 10. What are you depending on to make you happy? Commandment three. What are you looking at in your heart of hearts saying, if I have blank, then I'll finally be safe and secure then I'll finally have a level of safety that I'm comfortable with. Especially for us nervous types, this is probably a big issue for you. You're looking at something right now, attaching that desire for safety to it. If it's anything other than God, that's a problem. Here's one of the best ways you can um, look at that. What do you fear most about losing? That question's gonna clue you into what you're really, functionally, what you're depending on for your safety. What do you fear most losing? Here's question number four. Now, those three questions deal at the driving root level things. Here's just three more, very, very briefly, that uh, I think are helpful. Question number four. What angers or saddens you most? Like, where are you seeing in your life emotional responses that are disproportionate to the stimulus? Wherever you're seeing that, you're likely seeing where idolatry has gripped you. See, when we have an emotional response that is disproportionate to the stimulus, it's showing us that one of our idols is getting slapped around inside of us. That's why we're responding the way we're responding. Um, I had this little moment with Caleb about, um, oh, it was probably three months ago, where uh, he was doing something that, or Hannah was doing something to him, and he just falls apart. I mean, f- I mean just loses everything. And he looks up, I mean, just crying, just going crazy. He looks up at me and says, Dad! Am I overreacting? (laughs) I'm like, yes, Caleb. That's the definition of overreacting right there. And whenever whenever you see yourself overreacting, it's cluing you into an idol in you is getting pushed around. And it doesn't like that very much. So, So where do you see a disproportionate emotional response? Question number five. What will you knowingly sin to get? See, if if you've got an area in your life right now, and God is saying this, but you're saying, God, sorry, not going to do it. I'm going to do my own thing, my own way. You can have whatever else you want in me, but not that. Don't touch that. This is a non-negotiable. My hand is closed around this. Don't even talk about it. Wherever you have closed your hand around something and said, God, non-negotiable, not talking about it. Wherever that is, it is cluing you straight down into idolatry in your life. The reason your hand is closed around it is you're looking to that thing that your hand is closed around for either significant security or or satisfaction. That's the reason your hand is closed around it. Number six, to get down to the level of idolatry, you've got to keep asking this question, why? Why am I doing this? Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep finding myself here? Why do I keep looking at pornography? Why do I keep lying? Why do I keep doing these things I don't want to do? Why is that? Answer, idolatry. It's like you keep peeling back the layer of the onion enough, what you're going to find behind all of those weird behaviors that you don't know what's going on on the surface, you're always going to find idolatry buried underneath those things. Keep asking that question, why? Now, I want to close with this. Idols destroy Idols destroyed. 1 John 5.21. Let me read this verse one more time to you. 1 John 5.21. Just a reiteration of the first commandment. It goes like this. God looks at us and he says, little children, my sons and my daughters, man, I love you. I've delivered you from slavery. Man, I, I, I want your good in life. My little children, my beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. I, I want to give you this hope. That resisting idolatry is possible. By the power of the Spirit of God in you, it is possible. It is, that is possible to do. First of all, we, we need to have the Spirit in us, which means we need to, for the first time, repent of our sin. Turn from our idolatry and trust in Jesus. But it's actually possible. But I want you to hear this next thing. For, for everyone in here, it's going to be a process. It is long, it's grueling. You're gonna keep finding yourself returning once again to the idolatry that you repented from yesterday. It's possible and it's a process. For all of us in here, we're in a lifelong journey of keeping ourselves free from idols. 
And here are the two weapons we need to keep ourselves free from idols. Number one, we need recognition. We've got to do the hard work of asking those questions about what is driving us. What is inside of us that is driving us? What are we looking to for our hope and happiness, significance and security? What are those things? We've got to know that about ourselves. This is one of the most important questions about self-awareness that you can know about you. What is driving you? What is that? We've got to recognize. We've got to do the hard work in figuring those things out. And then here's the second part is repentance. This is God's gift to us to help us free from, you know, flee from idolatry. Repentance is turning from our idols, wrong worship, and redirecting our worship back at God again. That, that, that is what repentance is. It's not just saying, God, I've done something wrong. God, help me do right. It's getting down to the level of motives. God, it's not just I'm doing wrong. It's I'm worshiping wrong. Now, God, I'm repenting of worshiping wrong, and by the grace of God, I am throwing my life back onto Jesus, who I'm going to start worshiping rightly again. That's repentance, and that is what we all need in this room right now, isn't it? Um, I, I'll never will forget Paul Tripp, uh, author, uh, pastor. I, I never forget him using this um, example one time. He talked about this research trip that he went on to India, and on this research trip, he was um, kind of looking at Indian religion. And so he's there, and he went into this temple of the god, uh, god Skiva, um, one of the most prominent gods in India. And he goes in, and he could not believe what he found. There was a 20-foot-tall statue of a male sexual organ inside this temple. And, uh, he, and he's watching people walk into this temple. And they would walk in. They would immediately be in tears. They would fall down to their, to their knees in worship of this thing. They would run over to it, bow in front of it, and kiss it. Just the, the most weird, grotesque thing. He's interviewing this one guy who walked 400 miles to get there. So he's looking at all this go down, and he's just overwhelmed with a sense of disgust at this. He runs out of the temple back to his car, and as he's running back, he's having this thought of, thank God I'm not worshiping idols like that. And then that's when it dawned on him that he worships idols just like that. And you know what's, what's weird about idolatry? They never look weird to the person worshiping him. But your idols look that weird to God. They are that vile, they are that vulgar to God. It's just really hard for us to see that sometimes and we're loving that thing, isn't it? And by the power of, of the spirit of God in us, here's what God as a good father is looking at us and saying this morning, flee from that resist that. Your destruction waits on the other end of worshiping that thing. Your hearts are always going to be broken down that road. Come after me. Worship me. I will not break your heart. I will satisfy it. Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a few minutes to allow the Spirit of God to press into you this morning the things that would be most helpful and to remove for you the things that would not be helpful. And and we get the privilege this morning of ending our service with communion. And let me just remind you, when we're talking communion, it is for those who are in a right relationship with God. That means if there is idolatry that is in us that we are aware of, and just be praying now that the Spirit of God would reveal that in you. But what are you looking to in your life right now for security and for safety, for, for significance, to make you a somebody, to validate yourself, to prove that you're, you're not just another bum from the neighborhood? What, what are you depending on to make you happy in your life? It's anything other than God, it's idolatry. And the first part of taking communion is every ounce of idolatry in us that we're aware of, that we are repenting of that, that we are turning our back on that, and we are running back to God again. So where in your life right now does, does repentance need to happen? And for some of us in the room, it means getting right with God for the first time. It means that there's a moment like right now that needs to happen where we turn from our idolatry and we trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make us right with God and we begin to worship God through Jesus for the first time in our life.
And here's the great news of the Bible. The Bible says if we do that, God, right now, his hands are wide open. He's willing to save, rescue, and redeem us right now. So, so the first step is being right with God. Where is his repentance? Where is it needed in your life right now? And let me just remind you how, how this goes down. We're going to give you a few minutes just to sit before God. And then as you are ready, we've got um, a table in the back. We've got a couple of tables up front for communion this morning. And you can come up to these tables. You can dip the bread in the juice and take communion there. And uh, if you've got kids in the room, if they're Christians, they're welcome to come and take communion with us. If they're not Christians yet, they haven't trusted Jesus yet, I mean, this would be a great day to talk about that with them. And you're more than welcome to bring them up, let, let them watch you take communion. I think it would provide a great conversation on the way home today. So as you are ready this morning, you do some business with them, when you're ready, you can come up, these tables, one's in the back, and take communion this morning. So Father, I pray for help this morning. God, I pray that you would put in us a deep passion to turn from idols. And God, you would give us all an awareness this morning that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of our idolatry is covered by grace. That's what communion is telling us this morning. It is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And at the same time, that, that, that powerful grace that covers our sin also transforms us. It changes us. It, it's our only hope of not trusting in idols and turning to trust you, the true and living God. So God, will you help us this morning? God, will you make us a church family who resists idolatry, who has no other gods before you? It's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.